it's good to see you guys here. It makes my soul tremendously happy uh, and warm to see you here, uh, to see all of you here. Um, we are going to continue on this week with our series called The Songs of the Story. Uh, and this week we are in the third song that we're going to be looking at um, of the four songs of Luke that tell the story of the birth of Christ and the story of the gospel. And, and we did this in particular because there's just this natural reality that we're all familiar with, but every good story, every story worth telling, if, you, if you're honest, has a soundtrack to it. Um, every great movie, every great story has a soundtrack that oftentimes is better than the movie itself, that the music itself and the songs themselves tell the story better than the movie does sometimes. And if you're really honest, you remember back to seventh grade, eighth grade, sixth grade, making those mixtapes for somebody. And she, these songs are going to tell the story that you just don't have the courage to say yet. And you're just hoping they're going to listen to them. And they're going to hear the same thing you wanted to say. But every great story has songs, has a soundtrack. And, and the gospel writer Luke uh, decided for us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to record these four songs that four great characters sang uh, to tell different perspectives and different aspects of the birth of Christ and what that would mean not only for them, but for us and for the world for all eternity. So we started by looking at Mary's great song, the Magnificat, the song she sang as the angel Gabriel told her that she was to give birth to the Savior. And we looked at the Benedictus last week, and Chris did a great job on that, the song of Zechariah, the old grumpy priest, as Gabriel came to him and told him that his wife, beyond childbearing years, would give birth to the son who would be the forerunner of the Savior. And he bust out into song, celebrating that great blessing of God, but also celebrating what was to come for the one that his son would point to. And this week, we're going to look at song number three, the, the Gloria, the song of the angels. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Luke 2. We're going to read it. I'm going to pray. Um, and then we're going to talk about everything that surrounds the song and the song itself. Because this song, in comparison to the other ones, is the shortest. It's much shorter than the other songs, and it's a response to something so profound and so great that if we're going to be able to join in the song with the angels, with the heavenly hosts, we've got to understand what made them bust out in the song in the first place. So if you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, we'll start in verse 8. We'll read, I'll pray, and then we'll trust God to let the Holy Spirit bring joy to our hearts the way it did to theirs. And in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, this is the culmination, the climax, the song that brings it all together. This is the song of your story of redemption that unpacks for us the magnitude of your mercy, your wisdom, your greatness, your glory. God, may we be brought into this place. May we be brought into this story. May we see our existence and our stories as those created by you to bring you glory as a part of this great story that you've been telling. May this song with the others become our song. May we sing of the good news of great joy for us and for all people. And we ask that you do that work in our hearts this morning with all of the anxieties and distractions and frustrations and pressures and busyness that faces us this time of the year. Lord, let our hearts and let the song of our soul be one of joy this morning. And we ask this, that you would be made much of and we would experience that joy that comes from you. It's a good joy. It's your joy. And we ask you to do that for us this morning. In the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, we have to understand a little bit something, a little something about the people in this song if we're going to understand the song better. We have to understand the perspective this song is sung from. And, and I, you know, I'm sure somebody has done it far more eloquently than I will, but I haven't come across it yet. But you have to understand this song and this situation from the perspective of the angels. 
And so if you're actually going to understand why the angels sang what they sang and what would cause them to bust out in song the way they did, you're going to have to understand a little bit about the angels and a little bit about what caused them to do what they did. You see, the angels were created beings. The angels were created by God, like the rest of creation, to reflect God's glory. They were especially created by God to be in his presence, but nonetheless, they were created by God, and they were there to reflect to glorify God in his presence like the rest of creation was reflected to glorify God. And so you have to imagine, you have to imagine the shock, if you can make it personal, the shock the angels must have felt that day as they were standing in the presence of God, praising God, watching God's good creation bring him glory and praise him as it was doing what it was created to do. As Adam and Eve and the rest of mankind were doing what they were created to do, you must imagine the shock as they watched one of their own who had been tempted and succumbed to a pride and a rebellion and by God was sent away from his presence down to earth. You must catch their shock as they watched this one who was created like them begin to tempt the crown glory of God's creation, mankind, to no longer trust God's good word. You've got to get in your mind what it must have been like for these angels who were there in the presence of God worshiping the glory of God and the majesty of God, watching God's creation do what God had created to do. And you've got to imagine the shock as they see the enemy begin to tempt the crown of God's creation to no longer trust him, to no longer put their hope and their faith and their trust in God's good word, but to trust the word of a deceiver, to trust the word of the one who had rebelled and been sent away. And you've got to imagine it, I imagine it much like one of those scenes in a movie when Adam and Eve no longer put their hope and their trust in God's good word and believe the word of the enemy and take and eat from that tree that had been forbidden. I imagine for the angels in the heavenlies as they were watching this unbelievable act of rebellion and ingratitude, I imagine for them it was like one of those scenes in a movie when everything slows down. And you know, some great action is going on, but it's going on so slow. And now you just see everybody trying to get there. And I can just imagine them at the edge of eternity just wanting to yell no and reach out and knock the fruit away and do something because for some, they know what's about to happen. What they do know because they don't know everything. They're not omniscient. They are created beings. They do not know the mind of God. But they do know what happened to the one who was like them, who no longer trusted God's good word. And I imagine this was one of those moments for the angels that it would just be like, no, do anything to stop what happened. You've got to imagine the shock. What's God going to do? What's going to happen now? These were the ones created in his image, in his likeness. These were the crown of his creative work. What was God going to do? And so you've got to imagine what's going on for the angels in the heavens when this begins to happen. They don't know what God knows. They don't know the plans that God has in place, but they know that as God comes into that garden after that horrible moment, and he comes and he curses not only man, and he curses not only woman, and he curses the enemy and he makes that great promise of grace right there in Genesis 3. When he says that one will come from the seed of this woman who will crush the head of this enemy, who one day will crush the head of this deceiver who has now taken what was so right and so beautiful and shattered it. One is going to come and he's gonna come from the seed of this woman. So you've got to imagine that the angels are there anticipating, now what, what, is he gonna, what is he gonna do? How is this going to be? And you've gotta imagine that from that point forward, they probably had the same longing and the same anticipation that every Israelite woman would have when she would give birth to a son. You gotta imagine when Eve and Adam were cast out of the garden, she gave birth to Cain. You gotta think, game on. This is the one. He said one is going to come from the seed who's going to crush the head of the deceiver, the enemy. It's all going to be made right. Here's the boy. But instead of crushing the head of the enemy, what does he do? He kills his brother. Cain kills his brother Abel. And from that point forward, the tension begins to build. 
the tension gets thick. For centuries, God is playing out his grace in the midst of a sinful, rebellious people. And God begins to be their God. He begins to be their deliverer. He begins to become for them the one who will remove them from the bondage that their sin has got them stuck in. And he begins to promise to them that he will forever one day make right all that had gone wrong. And he would fulfill that promise he made in the beginning. But for centuries, the anxiety and the anticipation built as the cycle of their sin and their rebellion would come and God's grace and his mercy would come, you would think that with each king, with David, with Saul, with Solomon, this would be the one who would do it, but no. No one could fulfill the promise that God had made and the people's hope would grow, their longing would grow, their anxiety would grow and the prophets would come and would promise the day when this long-awaited king, this savior, this warrior who would defeat their enemies was coming and the angels are looking on, watching, What's he going to do? Peter actually gives us a glimpse into this. In, in 1 Peter 1.10, he says, concerning this salvation, this redemption, this promise, this hope, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So the prophets, as they were proclaiming the word of God to the people in the midst of their sin in the presence of God's grace and deliverance did not know what they were prophesying about and when this final deliverance would come and they wanted to know. They did not have the complete understanding of what God was going to do in Christ so they prophesied it was coming. And then Peter says even the angels long to look into these things. So for all of eternity, from that moment when they watched Adam and Eve turn their back on God and they watched God step in with his covenant of grace and promise of redemption from the beginning, they have been longing to see how is God going to do this? How is God going to do this? They didn't know what was going to happen. And with every movement of the story, they were right there on the edge of the eternity with the rest of God's people, with the rest of the prophets, with the rest of the hope of Israel, wondering, how is God going to do this? And then as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, God had sent his prophets, promising, calling his people back, and then silence. 400 years of silence. No prophets calling God's people back to God. No prophets reminding God's people of his promise and his hope and his fulfillment. No prophets calling God's people to repentance for their adultery, their spiritual adultery, their hearts longing for something other than God. Silence. And then Gabriel gets the call. The angel's there with God, longing to look into what God is gonna do. How is he gonna do this? And Gabriel gets the call. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Gabriel gets called by God. And Gabriel somehow in, in Scripture seems to have a particular role in, in, in God's use of the angels in the life of man. When Gabriel shows up on the scene, something, something serious is going to happen. Something large, something profound is going to happen as Scripture records Gabriel's presence amongst people. And God calls Gabriel and, and the angels have to be wondering, what, 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 what's he going to do? God sends Gabriel to Nazareth. And the angels, I mean, if they were anything like me, I mean, this is probably sinful, so they weren't. But you wonder, why, why Nazareth? Of all this time, centuries have come. All this time, why is God sending Gabriel to Nazareth? Who is he going to smite in Nazareth? What's going on in Nazareth? And as we looked two weeks ago, Gabriel came to Nazareth, and he came to this young 14-year-old betrothed girl, he said, God has been orchestrating all of history to this moment. Just as we hold the truths of what David wrote about in the Psalms to heart when, when David proclaimed that God has known us before we were born. He knew us in our mother's womb. He knows every hair on our head. God knew this young girl in Nazareth before all of eternity. And he had been orchestrating all of history to this one moment. And Gabriel comes from the plan of God to this young girl named Mary in Nazareth and says, the one that we've been waiting for, the long-awaited Savior, 
the long-awaited king who would rule over a kingdom that would be like no other, the long-awaited warrior who would do away with our last enemies of sin and death has come, and he is, he is going to be born by you. You, Mary, are going to give birth to the one that God has promised and the one that we have waited for. And Gabriel shows up on the scene and begins to give this news to Mary, and you've got to wonder what the rest of the angels in eternity had to be thinking. When they're watching this unfold, Remember, they do not have the mind of God. They are not omniscient. They are not other versions of God. And they are watching God's plan unfold. And I have to think he didn't tell them ahead of time. I have to think that they are watching this unfold as Gabriel gives this news to Mary. And Gabriel gives this news to this grumpy old priest, Zechariah, that we talked about last week. Promising him that his barren wife would give birth to the one who would pave the way for this Savior. And they both broke out into songs that we have looked at for the last two weeks. But... God had been orchestrating everything together for this moment that Scripture says was the fullness of time. All of history, by God's grace, had become pregnant to this moment. And unbeknownst to them, God had been orchestrating something in the Roman Empire that they did not, were not even aware would fulfill his final promise to this moment. You see, Caesar Augustus had called at this time for a census to be taken of the entire Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire at that time included Judea. So all of the people of the Roman Empire were to be taken account of, so for taxation purposes, the Romans could know exactly what kind of income they could gather from the people in their empire. But there was this cranky little king, this little proconsul ruler in this area of Judea named Herod, who protested what Caesar Augustus was doing when he set this census up because he wanted to have a little more control over his area. So he actually delayed this census that Caesar Augustus had proclaimed of the empire for two years and forced and, well, influenced the decision for the empire to actually have the people across the land go back to their land of origin, unbeknownst to them, the prophecy of Micah chapter 2, that one day the Savior will be born in this little town of Bethlehem. And because of Herod's frustration with Caesar and Caesar's desire to find out what kind of taxes he's not getting in the empire, by God's unbelievably providential hand, the Roman empire forced Mary and Joseph to go back to the land of their forefathers, David, to Bethlehem. And God was orchestrating all of history to this one moment when this long-awaited savior, this long-awaited king, this long-awaited warrior would be born in fulfillment of all of his promises, in fulfillment of all of his hopes. When you get to Luke chapter two, I'm gonna go back to verse one because I want to, but we'll focus back on verse eight. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar that all the world would be registered. And this was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. And they all went to be registered, each to his own town. And so Joseph also went up from Galilee, Galilee, in the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was the house above the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Had no idea. Caesar, Herod, had no idea that they were playing into God's plan for the fulfillment of his promise and the fulfillment of all the prophecies that had been made about this long-awaited Messiah. And they make their way to Bethlehem. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so you gotta imagine this. I, again, man, you gotta read the gospels. You gotta put yourself there. I mean, we're going through this and I'm gonna tell you a few times, close your eyes. You all watch TV, you all watch movies. Look at this, see this. There's this young girl, 14, 15 years old. We talked about it a couple of weeks, what she must be faced with, the pressure, the anxiety, the worry, the reputation, all the things that were going on in Mary. And here she is towards the last trimester of her pregnancy. Uh, who knows what kind of time left in that bit, maybe a month, maybe two months. And here's this census that's been demanded and they have to actually return to Bethlehem, the, the home of their lineage, their forefather David. So this girl, young girl, never had a baby before with this betrothed husband and all that goes into that actually has to make this trip up this rocky mountainous area from Nazareth to Bethlehem. She has to walk. She has to ride a donkey. She's in the last few months of her pregnancy. She's uncomfortable. She doesn't know quite what to expect, what's coming next, what's going to happen. This is what they're doing. And they get on this donkey. They get by foot. Who knows how they did it? And they make their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And when they get there, Bethlehem was this little town and it would have been exploding with people. You got to imagine it. It's not like New York. It's not like Richmond. You know, these big cities. It was a little town 
But at this time, because of the census, everybody like them, just like Mary and Joseph, who were from the lineage of somebody who came from Bethlehem, all had to converge back on that place. So a lot of other people, just like them, had come back to Bethlehem to stay with family and ancestors to get recorded in this census. And there would have been a lot of Romans there, a lot of Roman soldiers, a lot of Roman proconsuls to oversee the census being taken and to oversee the taxes that were going to be given. So there were a lot of extra people, a lot of extra animals, a lot of stuff going on in this little town. So Mary and Joseph make their way there and there's no place for them to stay. And there was no place at the inn. It wasn't like Charles Dickens and the little inn and the innkeeper comes out and there's no room. That's not what it was like back then. At best, what they're talking about is this four-walled structure probably in the middle of a courtyard that had no roof probably. It was probably about, history says, about 10, maybe 11 feet tall at best. And inside that four-wall structure, there would have been a little bunk-like area made out of either stones or sticks all the way along the edges of the wall and people would have slept up there or down on the bottom of a four-wall little courtyard with very little roof or at least some thatching. That was an inn for strangers in that town about that place and there wasn't even room for them there. And so what happens is they have to go and find space in probably what was most like a a little lean-to kind of shanty that would have been set up for this mass amount of people who were coming. It wasn't like a big red barn where cows and horses are. We spent the weekend on the farm with my, my in-laws this week, and I was trying to think about what this had been like, and I had to be honest, I always thought about a big barn. Like, I go see at the farm, this big giant place with a roof and walls, and it's not what it was like. It would have been like a little lean-to, uh, uh, something that was thrown up for all these extra animals with kind of a, a 45-degree pitched roof that went from the ground up with probably some kind of stick or stone holding the corners up, and it was there to take care of all the extra livestock, all the extra sheep or goats or potentially camels that would have come with all of these people. And Mary and Joseph have to go there, this semi-private place full of animals and hay and poop and give birth to their firstborn son. I mean, forget the reality that this is the savior of the world. Forget the reality that the first throne that the king of the universe would ever be in would be a feed trough. Forget the reality of who was in her belly. Just imagine, 14 years old, you're giving birth to your first child and you're in a barn with animals and your husband who's probably never delivered one. Think about it. Just because that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit with the Son of God does not mean that it was not a normal childbirth. And there she was alone. No mom, no sisters, no neighbors, no cousins, no friends, no ladies to help her out. Her and Joseph and animals. And it was into that semi-private, dirty, ignoble place that the Savior of the world was born. And then we get to verse 8, the best part. And in the same region, Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Before you go too far, don't forget about those angels. Don't forget about what must be going on with them. They've seen Gabriel come and announce the long-awaited Savior is coming. They know that the child in Mary is the one who God had promised. And all of a sudden they look around and God the Father, God the Spirit. Whoa. How is God going to do this? How is, how is this going to happen? I mean, you've got to imagine. They've been looking out over this for all of history. And here it comes. Here it comes. Imagine the excitement. Imagine the anticipation. Imagine the angst that you would be feeling. And I know you're not an angel, but just try for me for one moment. And Luke goes on to say, while this was going on, there were these shepherds. They were out in the same region, out on their fields, keeping their flock by night. Now, you've got to know a little bit about these characters and what's going on there because I want you to see this. I want you to sit back and, and see what's going on. Now, shepherds, they've caught a bad rap probably in the last 15, 20 years of preaching when people tell this story because there are some parts of history, of, uh, of Judean history and Israelite history in the first century that, that kind of records that shepherds became pretty shameful people, uh, pretty shysty people, uh, people that, that, that were um, uh, 
they weren't fair, they were dishonest, and that wasn't necessarily true. It wasn't a shameful profession. It's one of the most recorded professions in all of Scripture. You know, it's very likely, and if we had time, we would preach on this, but I don't have time to preach on it this morning, so I'll just, I'll just tell you and you can think about it. But in this region in Bethlehem, as they would raise these sheep, it was most likely sheep that would be bought and purchased and used for sacrifices in Jerusalem. And can you imagine that this might be the same field that thousands of years ago David pastured his sheep in Bethlehem, and that these shepherds would be pasturing sheep that would actually be made in sacrifices in Jerusalem without knowing that the final sacrifice, the great sheep that would be led to slaughter, had just been born? in the same region. There's a lot going on right there. But these shepherds, they weren't shameful people. It was just a lowly profession. It was considered probably the lowest of all professions that anybody could get into. Um, they were not allowed to actually vote or, I mean, um, um, testify in court. They were believed to be so simple-minded and so lowly as to not be smart enough to actually put two and two together so that their testimony wouldn't be valid in court. They weren't educated. It was considered something that a child could go and do. Hence, you find David being the youngest of all of his sons, tending to all the flocks out in the field. It was a lowly profession. It was a profession that was culturally looked down upon because it seemed the job of a simpleton. But religiously, spiritually, it was looked down upon too because you got to remember, these guys are, are watching their flocks seven days a week. There was no way that they could keep all of the arduous rituals and laws that the, the Pharisees and the rabbis had piled onto God's law for over the years. So there was no way they could do all the things that spiritually pure and religiously faithful Jewish people could do. So by the religious community, they were looked on as outcasts and dirty and vile. They couldn't keep the Sabbath. They couldn't keep the cleansings. They were looked down upon by society. They were looked down upon by the church. And they were just lowly people out in the fields. And so what they would have been doing, they would have been out there with their sheep. And by day, these sheep would have grazed across the pastures in the hillsides outside Bethlehem. And they would have been moving them to find the right place for them to eat. But at night, what these shepherds would do is they would bring them into this thing that was called a fold. And a fold, again, get out of your mind what you see when you go to the farms now. A fold would have been very much like what Mary and Joseph were in in that courtyard that was keeping watch over all those extra animals in the city. It would have been this little lean-to kind of shanty that the shepherds would have put together in that field where they were going to be staying with their sheep for a while to graze. It would have just been a little roof pitched off the ground with some sticks or stones holding it up with a narrow door for the sheep to actually get in. And they would bring all the sheep in there at night into that fold and what would happen is one of the shepherds would actually lay down across that narrow doorway so that the sheep couldn't get out and the rest of the shepherds would keep watch as one shepherd would sleep I imagine them probably grabbing some grass and tickling his nose and poking him with their staff as he's trying to sleep across the door but that's all fun and games but the shepherd would lay across the door and he would protect that door so that no sheep could get out and no thing could get in without crossing over him and the rest of the shepherds would keep watch over the sheep by night. And so here are these shepherds out in this field keeping watch of their sheep by night just doing what shepherds do. Maybe playing music, maybe telling jokes, um, maybe just making rounds around the, the area where the sheep are grazing. I don't know what kind of predators are in Bethlehem. I don't think of mountain lions. I don't know. There are coyotes in Israel. I don't know. But they would have brought them in. Thieves would have come to steal them. So these shepherds are just in this field. These lowly, disregarded, outcast people looked at as someone so uneducated and simple as to not even be trusted in court. Somebody so dirty they couldn't even come into the temple to worship God. Just left out into the field with animals. And here they are, keeping watch by night, doing what, what shepherds actually do. In verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Now, you're just a shepherd. You're out in the field. You got the sheep in the fold. Your buddy's sleeping at the door. You're keeping watch, making jokes with your other buddies out there helping you. Maybe you're by yourself. You're the one laid across, and you're watching. You're just looking at stars. Who knows what you're thinking about? David used to write songs. Who knows what you're doing? You're just laying there. Stars in the sky, sheep sleeping behind you, and an angel of the Lord appears. Well, that word appear is, is, I don't know how you imagine this when you read this story. Don't, don't, please, don't just fly by it. But there was no blinding light that came up in the sky and the shepherds were wondering what was going on and an angel appeared floating in the sky. This word appeared is a word that means standing nearby. The shepherds are just doing what they're doing, keeping watch. They come around the corner and there is an angel of the Lord with the glory of the Lord shining 
around him in the middle of the night. And they're filled with fear. They're just doing shepherd stuff. And here's an angel of the Lord with the glory of the Lord. And let's just say it was Gabriel. There's no reason to think that God didn't give him the trifecta. If he got to go to Mary and Zechariah, there's no reason Gabriel didn't get to go to the shepherds too. And an angel of the Lord appears and they were filled with fear. And this is a common response when the glory of the Lord comes in contact with sinful humanity. If you go back into the Old Testament, Isaiah, he came in contact with the glory of the Lord and he pronounced a curse upon himself and he expected himself to be burned up in the presence of the glory of God. Ezekiel came in the presence of the glory of the Lord and he fell on his face in a coma. John, the apostle, John, the beloved of Jesus, came into contact with the unveiled glory of the Lord while on an island in Patmos in his great revelation and he rolled over, he said, as a dead man into a coma. Even when people came into contact with the veiled presence of the glory of God in the person of Jesus, you see a similar reaction. There was a woman who was healed by Jesus and as she began to turn and go away, when she realized that he must be God because he had healed her, the Bible records that she became very afraid. You've got his disciples who would spend three years with him, who would know him inside and out, who would tell, laugh at his jokes, who would listen to his stories, who would travel with him and see all the miracles, who would be a part of all that he was doing. And when they became afraid of a storm in a boat out on a lake, the Bible says that they became afraid of what might happen to them. But when Jesus stood up and he spoke peace over this storm and it stopped, the Bible says they became exceedingly afraid. You see, when sinful people find themselves in the presence of the glory and the holiness of a God, you know two things are for sure. Just as you can see him, he can see you. And just as you are confronted with his holiness and his righteousness and his glory and his immensity, his magnitude and his grandeur, he is confronted with your sinfulness. And the right response is fear. The right response is awe. And so you see the glory of the Lord shining around this angel who has appeared to these lowly, outcast, unreligious shepherds who must think as low of themselves as the culture around them does. And they're filled with fear. Verse 10. The angel said to them, I love this. Fear not. Don't be afraid. First thing out of every angel's mouth in the Bible. Don't be afraid. I haven't come to incinerate you. I haven't come to destroy you. I haven't come to bring God's justice upon your life for your sin. Fear not. Listen to him really carefully. Because when you understand what he's about to say, when these angels bust out into song who have been looking out over this whole thing, you're going to finally get it. Don't be afraid. For behold. Now, let me try to reenact what's going on here. There's fear. The angel says, don't be afraid. And you got a moment to think, okay, I won't be afraid. I'll try to be casual. But he says, behold. <laughs> Pay attention. Behold means stop, look at me, listen to what I'm about to say. Don't miss it. Listen. Pay attention. Look at what he says. Behold, I bring you good news. That good news is the same thing we translate Gospel. That word gospel was a very common word in the first century. It was a political word. That word gospel meant the announcement of good news of a conquering or victorious king. So these shepherds, uneducated, would have been familiar with this idea of the gospel. They would have heard of the gospel of Augustus who had conquered another territory and they would have sent a messenger into the land proclaiming the good news of this king and what life would be like in his kingdom and what kind of changes the king would bring into this kingdom and how it would be different for these people who have been conquered. Gospel was a political word and this angel just said, I've got good news for you. I've got gospel for you. Don't be afraid. Okay, something has happened. A change has come a new king is in place, a new kingdom has come, what's going on? This is what they're saying. He says, I bring you good news of great joy. This one's gonna make you happy. 
you who have no reason, no reason in the eyes of the people around you to find joy. You who are looked down upon, you who are frowned upon, you who are vile in the eyes of the people around you, I am bringing you good news of a new king and a new kingdom that should birth joy, great joy in your soul. For unto you, you, shepherds, you is born this day in the city of David, a savior. No, that's not a foreign word either. The Greeks and the Romans, they've had their saviors forever. You can go back into history, not even a hard look into history, and you'll find it was a common practice for the Romans or the Greeks to put this word savior, this title savior over philosophers who they believed would save them from this eternal ignorance that they so looked down upon. They'd put this title savior over doctors who they believed would save them from the, the scourge of death or disease that would come. You'd see them put this title savior over kings and over emperors who they would believe would save them from the danger that awaited them from the nations surrounding their home. Savior wasn't a strange word, but this angel has said something very different about what's about to happen. He says there is good news of a new king and a new kingdom. It's it will bring you great joy for unto you this Savior who will save you from that ignorance, save you from that death, save you from that danger has been born. And it's not Augustus, it's not anybody else, but Christ Jesus the Lord. It is Christ the Lord, the long-awaited one that God has promised has been born today for you. For you, Jesus did not come into this world to be the perfect example of kindness and mercy and nobility and morality. He didn't come into this world to demonstrate the perfect example of passivity. In fact, he fought one of the most deadly and victorious battles that will ever be fought in all of eternity. He did not come to show us how we must live as moral people. He didn't want to show us what simple and real tenderness was all about. Jesus come to, came to save his people from their sins. He came to reign as the king over a new kingdom whose kingdom will have no end. And he came to rule over all things that had been created and all things that had been shattered by what sin had brought into God's great place. Jesus Christ was born to Mary. And he lived the life we were created to live. And he laid that life down on the cross to be the savior of the world. That's why he was born. That is the good news that these angels came to proclaim to these lowly outcast shepherds. It is the same news that we proclaim week in and week out, day in and day out here with our lives. He came to save us from the penalty of our sin. He came to save us from the just wrath of God and separation from God for all of eternity that is the due penalty for our disregard towards God for who he is. He came to save us not only from that penalty but from the power that sin has over our lives. He came to save us from the sin that so wraps us up that we can't seem to get rid of by giving us his very spirit that would later raise him from the dead into our hearts that would bring victory in our souls over the things that so easily bind our hearts and desires, and then he came one day to save us from the presence of that sin because as it is right now, though we may be free from the power of that sin by God's spirit, the presence of that sin still remains. And this Advent season, this long-awaited hope still has a fulfillment that we're looking forward to when God will one day come and that king will reign over his kingdom for all of eternity, and in that kingdom, the presence of the sin will not be there. There will be no more sickness, no more tears, no more hurt, no more anger, no more fear. This is what the angels came to proclaim and they came to proclaim it to these lowly shepherds. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, Paul said, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And this, of all things, should be good news of great joy. This, of all things, should be good news of great joy. But let me tell you this, it will only only be good news of great joy if you think the problem that you face in your life, the biggest problem you face in your life is not the job market, not the stock market, not the economy, but the state of your soul before a holy God. If you do not think the biggest problem that you have in this life is your sinful soul and disregard of God and his holiness, then this will not be good news of great joy. It might be good news of 
moderate forgiveness. I mean, it might be good news of, you know, pacify a little bit of fear and anxiety, but it won't be good news of great joy. If you're struggling to find great joy in this good news, it's because you've, you've yet to see the need that you have for this kind of redemption. Somehow your mind has gotten distracted and drawn away from your great need for this great Savior. Somehow you've gotten distracted from seeing the great news of this king whose kingdom will be like no other kingdom. No other kingdom that you could ever be a part of apart from his sacrifice on your behalf. If this news does not bring great joy into your heart, it's not because it's not great news. It's because you've forgotten how much you need it. So much of this Advent season is about reminding ourselves of how much we need this Savior. The anxiety and the longing that the people of God must have been feeling for centuries, waiting, when is this one coming? They were so acutely aware of their need for him because they were confronted in this sacrificial system of the penalty for their transgression from him. But we get so easily distracted, so easily distracted. This is good news, great joy. You can be set free. You can be redeemed. You can be loved in the way that you were created to be loved by the only one who can love you in the way that you're looking for. This is good news of great joy. So now, with that in place, you can begin to understand what was going on and why all of a sudden 400 years have gone by. There's been no communication from God. For all of eternity, these angels have been standing on the edge of eternity looking out going, what is God going to do? How is he going to do it? How is all that has gone wrong going to be made right? And what in the world, how is he going to do it? And with the announcement of this news, with the announcement of this Savior, with the announcement of the culmination of God's plan in this one who would be born a child, as Chris said, and would die later a man as a sacrifice for our sins, that God would raise from the dead out of nowhere, not only does one angel appear, but the heavenly hosts appear. And this is what they say. Glory to God in the highest. For all of eternity, they have been waiting to see what God was going to do. Their greatest concern, listen to me, their greatest concern was not you. Their greatest concern was not the people of Israel. Their greatest concern was God's glory. Their greatest concern was God's reputation. Their greatest concern was God's character that he put on the line when he promised these sinful people to be their God and to make them his people. How would he do that without reneging on any of his character? The angels have been watching and waiting. How is he going to do it? And here it is, and they know, and they see it, and they taste it, and they bust out in glory to God. If you notice nothing about this song, notice this. It's not about you. It's not about Mary. It's not about Joseph. It's not about all the circumstances and situations that got put in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled. It's about God. The good news of great joy is about God. He did what was unfathomable. He made a way for us to be reconciled to him without ever diminishing anything about his person. Unbelievable. And now because of what he has done through this child... Born in this circumstance, dying on a cross, spit upon and mocked by man, he would bring a kingdom that was a long-awaited kingdom that would have no end, that we would be a part of, where there would be no more hurt, where he, that God, would be our king. That love would be the character of that kingdom. This is what that song is about. It is about God and the angels who have been waiting to see how this happens get a taste of it and all they can do is bust out. 
mean, I, they had to be ready to explode when they got a glimpse of what was going to happen and how God was going to do it. And God just peels it back for a second and lets them come on the scene. And I can only imagine what that must have sounded like. The heavenly hosts surround these shepherds in this field and begin to sing praise to God for his character, his nature, his wisdom, his love, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness, his glory. And they say peace. Not UN kind of peace. Real peace between a holy God and a sinful man has come because God has made a way through this child born in a manger who would become the long-awaited savior king and a warrior who would defeat our enemies on our behalf and reconcile us to God and bring real peace between sinful God, between a sinful man and a holy God. Peace to those on whom God's favor rests. You know, joy can only come for those who know, who know they need the redemption that comes from the Savior and peace can only come from those who feel the anxiety and the tension that comes from the need of this Savior. The good news of the gospel brings great joy and great peace. And I would love, I would love, I would love, I would love to be able to duplicate the song of those angels. I would love to be able to tell this good news and my my soul come free to sing of God's great glory, the way these angels sang. But that's a song that will never be duplicated. That's a moment in all of history that will never be duplicated. But we can can imitate it. Here's what I want to do. There is a song that has been written that I think is one of the greatest songs ever written for the church. We tend to squinch it down into Christmas time, and it's a shame. But I think it's probably as close to this song as will ever come in what it says and who it celebrates. See, in the 1830s, there was this French wine merchant who was commissioned by a, a little parish priest to write a poem for the Advent season. And so he wrote this poem for this priest, and, and instead of reading you an English translation of it, because you have no familiarity with it, I'll tell you what happened with that poem. In 1847, about 12 years later, a guy named Adolf Adams composed a song based off that poem, and you're probably more familiar with the song. It goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not Ray. I'm not an angel. Um, But it goes something like this, and I want you to think about it. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to think about it as we read about it. And I want you to see this story. I want you to see the unfolding of God's plan. It goes like this. Oh, holy night. The stars are brightly shining. See it. See on one side Mary, Joseph, in this little lean-to makeshift barn, looking at their baby, swaddled up in those clothes, nursing, lying there, sleeping, tears of joy, tears of wonder, maybe some anxiety. See them there. Hear the animals. See the sky. See the stars. See the shepherds out there in the field with their animals, doing what they do. Stars in the sky, taking care of these sheep, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, doing what shepherds do. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And this is what all of history has been leading to. Think about it. The world has been pining away in sin and error for this moment, this fulfillment, this promise, this time that God would make right what has gone wrong. Then he appeared. The world laid in wait, and then he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. The soul felt its worth. He struggled with that. He struggled with worth, dignity, The Savior has come, and now what you knew was missing has been found. A thrill of hope 
the weary world rejoices. Why for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn? Are you weary? Heavy, laden, burdened, anxious? There's a thrill of hope because a new kingdom, a new morn has been born. He says, fall on your knees and hear the angels' voices. Hear the song, hear the glory, hear the absolute explosion of anticipation from the angels. He goes on to say, the king of kings, he lays in this lowly manger. In all of our trials, he was born to be our friend. He knows our need. And to our weakness, he is no stranger. He needy, weak, struggling. This one who would come, this deliverer and redeemer, he knows your need. He is no stranger to your weakness and he has come and he would go to say, my load is light, my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you. He takes your need. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chain shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. You can read that human and you can read that political but the reality of it is that all oppression that has come because of sin has been broken. Through his sacrifice on our behalf all oppression has been broken. That sin that you struggle with that ties you up, that wears you out, that binds you down. He has given you his spirit who raised him from the dead. All oppression by his sacrifice has been broken. This is the song that the angels sing. Now we we sing sweet hymns of joy. In grateful chorus raise we. Let all within, let everything within you, let everything, all of your hope and all of your anticipation, all of your expectation, all of your longing, all of your want, all within, praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Praise him forever. His power and his glory evermore proclaim. So now this morning, in in response to the good news of great joy. We can't join the angels in that great song, but we can sing this. And I want us to stand this morning in response to this proclamation, this great announcement of the good news of God's coming King and Savior to sing this great song of good news, of great joy, and celebrate what God has done on our behalf in Jesus. And together, let's sing and let this be a song of joy for your heart this morning.